This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? Today, we get to sit with, remotely, uh, with Eliza Orlands from New York, New York, who is currently running for Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and she is a fellow public defender. Eliza, welcome. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here chatting with you guys. I, I had no idea, you know, when Sajan and I started this podcast that we would be getting to know several people in the country who were fellow public defenders making this shift uh, or taking on this new challenge. Tell us uh, what was, um, just if you could for a moment, a little bit about yourself, about your PD, when you started as a PD, what, what brought you to the work? Yeah, so I became a public defender over a decade ago, but I knew that I wanted to be a public defender from the time I was a teenager. It was the only thing I wanted to do with my life. It was the reason I went to law school, the only job I applied for. I remember in my final round interview with the head of the criminal defense practice at Legal Aid, he said, all right, Eliza, well, it was great to meet you. Um, please let us know if you get any other job offers. And I said, would that enhance my application? And he said, no, we just want to be kept apprised. And I said, well, in that case, you should know there won't be any other job offers. It was truly all my eggs, one basket. This was the only thing I wanted to do with my life. And I thought I would do it forever. Yeah. What was it uh, in your background or from your life experiences that, that drew you to it, especially at such a young age? You said, you know, it's something that you had kind of honed in on from from high school. I read a little bit about your background that you uh, split some time in your early life between the United States and living abroad. Um, was there anything about that experience that informed your pursuit of public defense or any, something else that happened in your life that uh, led you to that place? Well, I think that I am very fortunate. I mean, I grew up with parents who who always kind of pushed me and my sisters towards the understanding that our obligation was to kind of make the world a better place, to help other people, to to fight against injustice. As you said, I, I lived in China as well. My parents adopted my sister from Beijing when I was four. And so I grew up in a biracial family. And when I was in elementary school, as young as, you know, maybe nine or something, uh, my younger sister was in my same school and I would go pick her up after school. I would go to her classroom to get her. And sometimes she'd be crying and I would say, what happened? What's wrong? And she would say, oh, these the kids were making fun of me. They were being mean to me. They were being racist, essentially. They would pull their eyes to the side and they would, you know, use kind of slurs against her. And I would stand up for her and I would go and talk to these other kids and yell at them and threaten them. And, you know, just kind of, these were bullies. And, and I recognized that I had this privilege due to the color of my skin from a time when I was extremely young. And this is something that people are talking about a lot now. But I have friends or people who, who have said, you know, I didn't really know I was white until I was X years old, until I was almost an adult, because it just never really played into my life. But because I had a sister who was not white, I think I, I started recognizing that very early on and recognizing the privilege that it gave me and that I needed to use that privilege to speak up for others. The, the summer that I spent in college at legal aid as an intern, from the first week, I knew that this was my calling. Like I walked into, into night court and saw the public defenders fighting for people, human beings who were being treated so unfairly, who were being jailed and bullied for, for low level offenses, for things that I'm sure as a white woman I could do and never, ever would be approached by the police, let alone arrested and taken to jail for the night. Um, and I, I realized that I needed to fight against injustice. And so that's what I decided to dedicate my career to. And 
now it's certainly taken a different pivot, mm. but I, I do still feel like I'm in the, the fight against injustice. Did your experience, did you ever work in night court as a PD? Oh, all the time. I mean, I it was something that we we worked night court, you know, probably three out of every four weeks, one night a week for the entire year. So I was there, God, hundreds of times probably. For those who don't know, night court is, you know, we have court 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and 5 p.m. to 1 a.m., here in New York, because otherwise people would sit in jail for days without meeting their lawyer, hearing the charges against them, getting a bail determination. I worked night court constantly and I would walk in and, you know, you pick up your file, you look through and you go in the back and I'm like, John Doe, John Doe. And he's like, lawyer. And he comes in the booth and I'm like, my name's Eliza Orleans and I'm going to be your attorney. And that's, you know, the first meeting of clients. And and there is, you know, it's exhausting and, and hard work and you're working 16 hour days and, and whatnot. But it's it was always there was always something kind of special about about getting to work night court. And like that was the first time you were meeting your clients, you're forming these relationships. But seeing the cases that came through was always so kind of it was just a gut punch every time. It was something that you never get used to it. You never get away from like the anger and frustration and heartbreak associated with seeing these cases come through. And I think it was my first year as a public defender that that I had this one case where, and I think about it all the time. I mean, it always stuck with me. Uh, a client of mine, well, I'll call John for John Doe, uh, for the purposes of the story, was a assistant manager at Gristides in lower Manhattan. And he worked at the same grocery store for over 20 years. He'd made his way up to assistant manager. And one night he was closing up the store around 11 p.m., buys two bags of groceries with his employee discount and locks the, locks the store up and goes and walks over to the subway. And he sets his bags next to him on the, on the seats in the uncrowded subway car and prepares for his long ride home. At the 125th Street stop, two uniformed NYPD officers get on the train, they grab his groceries, dump them to the ground, and place John in handcuffs and take him to jail for the night for the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility. Mm. Wow. Wow. And I met him the next night and got him out of jail, and, but it was, it was stuff like that that just made me realize how rigged our, our criminal punishment bureaucracy really is and how unjust it is and how cruel it is and how it's just a different system for those who are wealthy, powerful, well-connected and usually white and those who are marginalized communities, those who are people of color, LGBTQIA folks, folks from lower income backgrounds. That heartbreak and frustration and anger never went away with over a decade of practicing as a public defender. And, and I realized that the person who has all the power, the, the, who can really change the system is the DA, which is kind of what led to my decision to run for Manhattan District Attorney. Yeah, let's um, let's get, go into that a little bit more. You obviously, you've spent several years defending people in the system that you, I'm going to assume, have significant criticism of. I, sh I have significant concerns. Sajid has significant concerns about how the system operates. You know, we're kind of the body, throw your body on the gears, objectors sometimes. We participate within it, we work within it, but we're extremely skeptical, uh, I'm speaking now for myself, of kind of exercise of government power, of you know, compliance with constitutional obligations. I'm very passionate about having clients, you know, and having people uh, that I stand with. I imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, stepping away from this work that you're so committed to is a big deal and, you know, a significant, uh, potentially significant sacrifice. So what would, tell us what this process was about, you know, in terms of the decision to shift away, what, how you're thinking through 
this this move yeah well as you say representing clients there's there's nothing like it and i have stood next to over 3000 human beings charged with crimes in manhattan over the last decade and i have fought for people who are they're human beings i mean as you say these are people's mothers fathers sisters brothers these are people's partners these are people's children and the current manhattan district attorney has perpetuated a lock them up throw away the key mentality which doesn't keep us safe and has dehumanized people on every level even just the way in which they refer to people and as they're just case numbers they're felons criminals bodies inmates all of the language used is even dehumanizing and so i think having a district attorney who who recognizes the humanity in each and every person who will fight for bold transformational change and and think about being a different kind of prosecutor because you know i've stood next to and in the trenches with and side by side with human beings charged with crimes and i've seen what happens i know what happens after someone's charged after someone's indicted after a conviction i see what happens to families to people's careers to people's lives and so i think every standpoint every policy has to come from understanding the effect of the power of prosecution one thing i'm i'm curious about eliza that i asked chesa when we interviewed him about a year ago when he was making the run for san francisco da is you know there there maybe some that posit that it's the laws that are the problem um, that are formed that form the backbone of our mass incarceration system and that it's district attorneys that then prey upon those laws or, or utilize those laws to then dehumanize and and uh, incarcerate and cage uh, the people that we've been representing for for the time that we have. So I asked Chase of this and I'll ask you why run for district attorney and not for, you know, I don't know what the, the legislators are called in New York, but, you know, state assembly or state senate or something like that to change the laws that are being utilized by DAs every day in our courthouses or in your courthouses. I think that's such a great question because the laws are certainly a problem. There's certainly a huge problem. And I think that there's so many things that I would love to see changed in terms of the laws. We haven't even legalized marijuana in New York. There's so many things that haven't been dealt with in terms of the laws. But the district attorney has such unbelievable, unchecked power to make such huge changes without even needing the laws to be changed. And there's so much bureaucratic red tape when it comes to changing the laws. And, and I think that as district attorney i will be able to decide even without changing the laws who gets prosecuted what crimes they're charged with what pleas are offered whether or not they are requested whether or not discovery is turned over and when um there's so many things that that the district attorney can do even without the laws being changed that I, I think that my experience of having spent over a decade as a public defender is best utilized in in changing the way the district attorney's office operates because I so understand the nuances of how they how they operate how they how they charge crimes which cases get diverted who gets the opportunity for treatment and I recognize like the massive power the DA has to to change things even without the laws being changed. You know, we we you've been a public defender for over a decade, Avi, the same myself as well. As you've described, Avi's already talked about and I I I'll chime in. You know, we come to this work because it's a calling 
it's an identity it's some it's it's based rooted in values uh, like mercy and compassion and humanity um, service fulfilling and honoring the constitution standing up against the police state uh, pushing back against the system and machine of mass incarceration so it's like this real identity that we take on uh, we uh, I'm, I'm sure you might agree that it, it's a feeling of being in the trenches being in the bunker together with other kindred spirits that are doing this work oftentimes when we're in that bunker we look over across the way and we are adversarial with prosecutors and DAs. I, I personally, for most of my career, could never imagine being on that other side, especially when we talk about what, uh, liberty stakes being at interest, you know, caging people in our jails and in our prisons, even for a day, as you described, like with the man that was locked up for taking too much space up on the, on the subway. So it's not an indictment or it's not a, a confrontation or a cross-examination of you, but I'm just wondering how you've personally come to reconcile trying to take that leap from this bunker that we're all in together as public defenders to quote unquote the other side and how you're able to uh, kind of reconcile that and how you can potentially see that divide look different i think that that's such a that's such a great question because it's so true it's so hard to imagine i mean i never wanted to be a prosecutor. I've never worked as one. I've never aspired to be a prosecutor. Even now, running to be chief prosecutor, where I'd be the person making the decisions, still sometimes makes me shudder at the thought of being a prosecutor. Because as you say, this is that's who we've gone up against for our whole careers. That's those are the, you know, those are the people trying to fight to lock our clients up and we are trying to fight against that. But given what we know, I mean as a public defender after a decade, and I'm sure you've both felt this, that I was a cog enabling this system to continue to operate. Over 90% of my cases were resulting in pleas. Oftentimes I was convincing clients to take pleas that were horrible, but that I knew were the best outcome possible for their given mm. case, because otherwise they'd face, God forbid, decades in prison. and feeling like you're just enabling the system for so it's you're still in game right there's there's in game and there's there's not and so yes obviously as a prosecutor it's different but also as a prosecutor who gets to define what the job means like i'm not trying to be an ada under some carceral district attorney i'm trying to be the da who gets to define the job who gets to say this is gonna come from the perspective of having been a public defender who understands why the DA's role is so important, who understands the collateral consequences of every single conviction, of every single charge, of every plea bargain. And I will be able to set those priorities about even just from, from charging decisions where you know I know that, oh, we can only plead this crime down so much and there's still a mandatory minimum and this person will face mandatory incarceration. And I just think that that because I understand that power and this this rigged system of, of injustice, I will be able to be a DA who doesn't abuse that power, who works in conjunction with my former public defender colleagues to change what our system looks like, to really reimagine it in so many levels. And, and I think that that people are starting to call for this, that people are understanding that this needs to happen. And I hope to you know, be the person to represent that change that has been called for across the country. You started this run before this civil uprising. 
certainly during the BLM movement, but not during the movement in the streets that's so profound. Could you tell us a little bit about how this uh, civil uprising movement has affected your thinking around policy changes? Has it allowed you to reach the conclusion that bolder changes are, are you know, necessary or things that you believed were already necessary or more feasible now? Like, how, what's your thinking around kind of policy shifts or, you know, what, what sort of changes are required specifically because of uh, the societal recognition of Black Lives Matter in connection with police violence? Well, I think it's been amazing to see how many people are, are engaging in these protests. I mean, these are protests that I've been going to for many, many years. I mean, I've been protesting pretty much my entire adult life. And I mean, I remember six years ago after Eric Garner was murdered, being out in the streets chanting, I can't breathe, chanting Black Lives Matter. And it just, people weren't engaging in the same way. So things that I've been saying for, for well over a decade, people are starting to come around to. And I think that the police departments across the country have done a better job radicalizing my friends than I've been able to do in 10 years, you know, over the last eight weeks. Um, and I think that it's really been incredible to see how many people are recognizing all of these things. Like the conscience of our country has been rocked and it should have happened sooner because this, these racist systems have existed for hundreds of years. But, but we really somehow had like this powder keg about to explode moment where a, a, a spark was lit and people are now not going to settle for tinkering around the edges. They want to see big structural change and they they recognize all of these things that that we've been calling out so as as dark and as difficult as these times are i think it brings me a lot of hope because i think that this has created a, a moment in time where people are so energized towards change and people have recognized that you know what what those of us who have been part of this have always been saying like the system is racist we must call it out and it's not enough to now say, oh, I'm not racist. I'm, I'm not racist. So, you know, it's you must be actively anti-racist every single day. You must be intentional and deliberate and unapologetic in your fight to dismantle structural racism and systemic oppression and to call out white supremacy and to use your privilege in a tangible way. And that's more than just, oh, voting. You know, voting is not enough. I say to people, not all Democrats are created equal. You know, we live in a blue state, but I am running against a Democrat who is not someone who shares my values. And, and I think that recognizing also that there are people who have systematically had their voices taken away by means of disenfranchisement and, and so many other ways, but we must, you know, step forward and shout it out loud and say Black Lives Matter, but show it in our actions as well as our words. So I think that, that this movement is is really powerful and you know it's getting less news coverage but there are still people you know we're out in the streets every single day here in new york still and and i think that this is going to lead to to real change when things happen in society the urge to incarcerate and level up punishment and impose mandatory minimums is it a, there's a moment right now where that might be subject to much more scrutiny that's related to what's happening just the the policies that we use in courtrooms, and Sajid talks about this a lot, how it how it affects policing on the street. If you have mandatory minimums and you rely on them, how much do DAs actually care about the people who are subject to the mandatory minimums? Discretion doesn't matter anymore. It's just about whether to you know take them out of that bucket or not, not to actually reckon with who they are, 
what they're about, what's going on in their lives, how do we successfully get them back on track. It's just a totally different mindset. And I, I'm hopeful that as people think through the reforms that are needed in policing, they think through how do we check always that let's let's jail more, the thirst, you know, that 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 unquenchable thirst for more time is just slowed down a little bit. Saja, what do you think? Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, to Eliza's point, this whole movement and uh, the uprising and the rebellion in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, it's really um, normalized things that we've been saying in our courthouses every day. Um, but it felt like we were the only ones in the room uh, that were saying these things. Like when we would stand up at bail hearings and, and trying to humanize the people we're representing uh, or sitting in a DA's office trying to tell the stories of the people that we've, we were tasked to serve and were asking for non-incarceration sentences uh, during plea bargain discussions or at sentencings, um, or were asking for uh, judges to be skeptical of police behaviors or police responses to the people that we represent to throw out uh, unconstitutional stops and things like that. Everyone would just look at us and and often, you know, look at us side-eyed as if we were like speaking a different language and We'd get motions denied, we'd get plea bargain offers rejected, we'd kind of have the door shut in our faces in the courthouses all the time and have our, our the people we represent suffer the consequences of, of all of that. And so what's exciting to your point, Eliza, is that uh, what we've been saying in the courthouses about racist policing, about unconstitutional policing, about excessive force, about um, the inhumanity of the way we incarcerate it's actually becoming normalized language in the streets and on the news. And like you said, amongst friends that aren't public defenders, this is a moment where the values that we've been speaking about and then trying to manifest in this world of compassion and empathy and, and mercy and reimagining our criminal justice system that doesn't include incarceration as our only measure of justice. People are actually saying that now and listening and like, it's really exciting to, to see that genesis or that uh, synergy come together. And then to your point, now it is not that impossible to envision a public defender being the district attorney when we reframe what a district attorney does. We had this conversation with Chesa Boudin um, where we're thinking like, it doesn't even have to be called, a you know, the role is not a prosecutor. Like a prosecutor to me is very violent. It's very simplistic. It has this feeling like, that you are persecuting someone or you are literally pun or you're punishing them, you're ultimately caging them. Whereas a DA being a justice advocate, uh, someone who's interested in overall public safety, representing all the people, including the accused. Um, and then like you mentioned earlier, taking your experience as a public defender and then harnessing that and then bringing, human bringing the humanity of the people we represent into the DA's office because for so long or currently our whole system of mass incarceration is based upon the dehumanization of the people we represent specifically of black and brown bodies. And so long comment just to note that I, I hear you. Uh, I'm more able to reimagine and to think of, of you being a DA under this set of uh, societal circumstances and constructs than maybe two years ago when we were, we were in such a, the throes of a carceral state and the values are the gulf of values was so far apart. So um, I'm excited to see 
uh, what your tenure could look like. So what does your tenure as DA look like? Like what are some things that day one when you're elected as Manhattan district attorney that you're able to implement to bring in uh, humanity into the role, to reimagine the role and to move away from the uh, mass incarceration machine that we that we currently have in place? First of all, everything you said is so important and so true and just it's really exciting in that way to get to imagine. I mean, I'm going to be the next Manhattan district attorney. There's going to be a public defender as Manhattan district attorney who completely is going to overhaul the whole system. I mean, getting to even say that, it's so exciting in that regard because it's, I mean, we're seeing it with Chesa. Like he's done such amazing things already in San Francisco and and the idea that then we can have this in Manhattan. And although it's a local election, it's something that every city in America can look to and say, wow, look what they're doing there. That is working. And we can also do that. You know, we can decriminalize consensual sex work and it doesn't have to mean that the city is going to fall into disrepair because in fact what we're doing is protecting vulnerable people and allowing people to participate in in the workforce in the way that they see fit you know but it's it goes so far beyond that so so you know when i'm district attorney we're we're going to decriminalize poverty i mean so much of what we've done in this country is criminalize addiction and poverty and there's so many crimes that that are charged that should just never be part of our carceral punishment bureaucracy. They should be things that those cases should be automatically diverted. They should be either, you know, civil or, you know, some sort of programming or community, something completely outside of our criminal legal system, you know, a whole host of, of crimes. And I think that that includes low level drug possession. Um, that includes sex work. That includes trespassing. That includes, I mean, God forbid, taking up two seats on the subway or laying down on a park bench. I mean, all of these things that have just been used. Broken windows policing is something that has obviously time and time again been shown not to keep us safe. And I think that we need to deal with that in a way that is not involved in our carceral system. Further than that even is we need to deal with the issues that we're facing. I mean, as public defenders, we see all the time and so many of my clients were suffering from, you know, substance use disorders or mental health issues. Those are things that shouldn't be criminalized. They shouldn't be, they should be taken into account. You know, we should enable people to receive alternatives to incarceration as the rule rather than the exception. Right now, Sky Vance's office treats that as you have to jump through a million hoops. You have to come in and have proffer after proffer, meaning interviews with the DAs. You have to sign over releases for every medical record you've ever had in your entire life. You have to give over school records and every, I mean, everything you've ever had. And then still, after all of that, after this entire evaluation, after sitting in Rikers Island for months, potentially even a year or longer, the DA's office mostly says, we don't even think this person is worthy of treatment. Even if they want to plead to a felony up front, even if they want to subject themselves to a mandatory state prison sentence just for the opportunity to receive treatment, we're not going to let them do it. We don't think this person deserves treatment. And that's horrifying. And I've seen it time and time again with clients, with young clients, teenage clients, with, with mothers, with other people. And these are people who are desperately in need of help. And the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, with their paternalistic views and this, you know, playing God, decide that people don't deserve a chance. And I think that, that my office will, will be the exact opposite of that, that everyone gets a chance. It should be the rule rather than the exception. So I think that like alternatives to incarceration 
is something that I would, I would definitely be focused on. But I also think that um, there's something that, and, and I don't know whether this is, you know, a popular opinion, but that, that perpetrators of real harm are not being held accountable. And I think that that Cy Vance's office has been extremely problematic with that. And I think that that those two that those people fall into two kind of buckets. One being um, law enforcement. And I think we've seen that police are not held accountable. And in fact, not only are they not held accountable, but their misconduct is really hidden and sheltered from view. And they continue to use um, police officers who are known liars who are people who you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, I do. And then under oath have told lies that have resulted in people going to prison for years. And then the Manhattan District Attorney's Office continues to use those people as the sole witnesses for sending people to jail and prison. And there should be lists. I mean, I would keep lists. I would be forthcoming with that. There would be transparency as to these, we will not allow these people to testify and continue to lie or commit misconduct and, and not be held accountable. So police officers who brutalize communities, who terrorize them, who assault people, who kill people will be held accountable by my office. And I think that there's been for far too long this entanglement between the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the NYPD to the point where there's no distinction between them. The lines are so blurred and there should be a disentanglement. And there was a big news article that, oh, the NYPD is removing themselves. They're moving out of the DA's office. And it's like, they probably shouldn't have been there to begin with. They shouldn't be there. That should be a separate thing. And there should be a unit of people who are solely tasked with prosecuting police officers, with holding police officers and law enforcement accountable for their actions. But the other, there's another group of people, you know, the, the wealthy, well-connected, very powerful people who are not being held accountable, who are perpetrating harm on our communities. Now, whether that's people like Harvey Weinstein, who wasn't prosecuted for six years by the Manhattan DA, despite having recorded evidence of his sexual assaults, or Dr. Robert Haddon, who sexually assaulted dozens of his patients as an OBGYN at Columbia, maybe, maybe hundreds of women have come forward now, you know, arguing for leniency for Jeffrey Epstein and not prosecuting the Trump kids for their shady, fraudulent real estate dealings. You know, these are people who are perpetrating harm who are not being held accountable due to their status, due to their connections, due to their wealth. My clients get prosecuted for as little as stealing a pint of ice cream or a tube of toothpaste from CVS. Um, and yet there are employers who are stealing millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars from their employees and not being held accountable. And who are their employees? Their employees are, are typically the people who end up being our clients. These are people who are not powerful, not well-connected, who don't have that much money, oftentimes are black and brown people. They're non-citizens. They, they're vulnerable in some way and they're being taken advantage of. And so I think that, that, the, that justice will require that being a, a DA who, who really wants to see justice means, you know, decriminalizing poverty, but holding perpetrators of real harm accountable. Look what I'm whipping up. This is America. Don't got you slipping.
on the police abuse issue, there's a story came out last week about a high-ranking police official advising staff members uh, that you don't have to worry about the new anti-chokehold law uh, because the district attorneys here in New York won't prosecute you for violating it. And it was a pretty crystallizing, or you know, it was a, a pretty concrete example of how the point you just made about uh, police abuse and oversight winds up affecting what sort of policing we get, whether we have police officers who are invited and encouraged to choke people, uh, being tied to whether there will be any oversight of their behavior by the agency that actually does oversight. You know, as opposed to like an internal affairs unit at the police department, which I think that statement assumes doesn't really care uh, about, you know, an anti-chokehold law. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I'm Manhattan district attorney, I certainly will prosecute people who violate the chokehold law. You don't need to press on someone's diaphragm to put them in handcuffs. There is absolutely no excuse for that. You talked about a potential, uh, we refer to them sometimes as Brady lists. Just to be clear, there currently are not Brady disclosures. When you or your colleagues are doing night court, you don't get the police report associated with you know, a, a big stamp that says officer so-and-so was involved, lied during a Fourth Amendment hearing. That's not something that the district attorney currently has announced they look at before filing a case. Whether, you know, the officer who happened to find the drugs during the consensual encounter has lied several times about consensual encounters. But not only do we not get it during night court, oftentimes the case persists for months or years. I mean, I've had cases that I've taken to trial or hearings, you know, 15 months into the case where my client's been incarcerated that entire time, and I won't find out until midway through the hearing, oh, oops, turns out this police officer uh, was untruthful previously under oath in a grand jury or at a hearing. Somehow it just comes out at that point because I pushed the case all the way to hearing and trial. Whereas if my client had taken a plea, we would never have even known that. Yeah. So not only is it not given upfront, it's something that's often not disclosed until the last second midway through hearings or sometimes ever probably. Yeah, my sense, and obviously my sense is all that work should be done before filing. If you're going to take somebody and cage them or you know, you're going to do put them through the criminal prosecution system, doing some scrutiny on the policing or the witnesses who are required to prove the charge should happen before the person's held in a jail cell for two years before disclosure, obviously. I, I think, I mean, maybe that's a controversial statement, but it just seems straightforward to me that that work should be done on the front end and handed over. Sajid, what do you think? Well, I wanted to talk about something that Eliza mentioned um, in her in her comment about what her tenure as DA would look like. And you talked about accountability. You talked about uh, decriminalizing poverty and removing things entirely from our criminal legal system, um, but then ultimately holding people accountable within the criminal legal system. And for so long, our me our measure of accountability has been jail, prison. How much time can this person serve? And so as we talk about reimagining our system, one of the things that I have a hard time wrapping my head around with a public defender turning, uh, turning to become district attorney is uh, our use and reliance upon jail and prison as our answer to crime and as our measure of accountability. So one of the things that I've thought about, for example, is that could on day one, 
a progressive prosecutor like yourself or as a public defender turned DA change the way accountability looks in our system? Could it mean not sending people to to prison um, as we traditionally have for so many different types of crimes, including violent crimes? Or could it look like demanding from the district attorney's office that the prisons look different, that you know we no longer incarcerate as we do? We know that as as has well been documented, that places like Rikers Island and jails like Rikers Island and um, prisons across our country uh, don't rehabilitate people. They only further scar and traumatize people. They subject them to violence um, at the hands of correctional officers and other uh, people that are being held that are also traumatized already. Our prison systems spit out people worse off than, than they came in. So I'm I'm just wondering, Eliza, how how you are able to reconcile the role of district attorney with our reliance on incarceration as our measure of justice and our literal uh, conditions of jails and prisons as they sit now, and how you are able to uh, reimagine what that looks like and how you can even how you're going to be able to do that on day one, as opposed to having to wait until prisons are abolished or that they look different, you know, 10 years from now, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think that what we've seen and what we've experienced as public defenders is that we've been sold this false choice between a punitive criminal legal system and public safety. And America, you know, really just people just hammer this in and say, oh, we have to keep people safe, we must lock people up. And that's just not true. That's not true. We know that if someone is locked up for whether it be three months, three weeks, or even three days, that person is exponentially more likely to reoffend or get rearrested. And I think that 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 a lot of that comes from what we what we see happening with cash bail, with money bail, with wealth based detention. Um, I think that it's completely unjust to have a system where you only get the presumption of innocence. You're only presumed innocent until proven guilty if you have the wealth to buy your freedom. And that is just something that 100%, that, that ties in with decriminalizing poverty. I think that we cannot rely on money bail ever again. Like that is just something that is not acceptable, that is that perpetuates the racist, biased nature of our criminal legal system and is part of the problem. Pretrial detention, I think, makes us less safe. I think that we we have to figure out a way to not rely on that. And, and, and people say, but what about serious crimes? Well, we saw when Harvey Weinstein was finally prosecuted, he came in, he had, I think he was in and out of the courthouse in about seven minutes. He had a pre, pre-arranged bond of a million dollars, which is about a 50th of his net worth. He walked in, was arraigned, paid bond, was out. And he did not spend one single night incarcerated, not one night, until after he was found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury of 12 unanimously, you know, post-trial. And, and he was taken into custody subsequently. And, and I think that, that that's, he was facing a mandatory life sentence on the top charge. He was facing a life. And he did not have to spend a single night incarcerated leading up to his trial. Cash bail is supposed to be for ensuring people's return to court. And I think that that is so... Um, not how it's used, which we, we've all seen. Um, but I do think that, that accountability doesn't have to look like incarceration. And I think that you bring up such, you know, that's, that's such a, an interesting point because people think, well, holding someone accountable means sending them to jail or prison, means incarceration. 
But what we know is that our system as it currently exists doesn't actually help victims. It doesn't do anything for victims. And in fact, today's victim is tomorrow's client and vice versa. Today's client is tomorrow's victim because it's just, and all, all it does is perpetuate harm. Um, I'm sure you both have read um, Danielle Sarid. She's amazing and she, um, she talks about restorative justice and, and she talks about how like if we had the anthropomorphization, the, the human form of the criminal legal system walking down a hill with you and someone runs up behind you and shoves you to the ground and tumble down and you're lying broken and bloody and bleeding at the bottom of the hill, all the criminal legal system can do for you is chase down the person who did it and beat the crap out of them too. And like, how does that actually help the person, you who's laying there bloody and broken? What we need is something that actually helps heal people, that actually brings people together. Um, she tells a beautiful story about a, um, about a man who was, I think he was mugged at knife point, kind of in, you know, knife to his neck. And it was extremely traumatizing. Um, he was suffering from PTSD symptoms afterwards, was really afraid to leave his house every time he was out on the street and someone was behind him, even a 90 year old woman. He was so jumpy and scared that it really caused him not to be able to leave home. Um, he couldn't really go to his job anymore. His entire life was, was upended by the fact that he was a victim of this robbery. He was given the opportunity to opt in, as was, was the person who was um, accused and took responsibility for having committed the robbery, to opt into this kind of restorative justice program. And they both opted in and he said, you know, what, what could be worse? My life is over as I know it because I can't really function these days. And so they brought them into a room together and face to face, and they had the, the talking stick going back and forth. The, the victim spoke about what he had experienced and what his life had been like afterwards and, and all that he had been through. And the, the, the perpetrator said, wow, I kind of wasn't really thinking about you when I did this. I really, I had very little thought about you. I was thinking about myself and how to survive and, and this is all I've ever known. He's like every man in my family, um, my brothers, my uncle, my father has gone to prison for 10 years or more. And he's like, and that's where I knew I'd end up too at some point. It was inevitable. But you, you man, you also, you never learned to defend yourself. And, you know, the social workers and everybody, and they're sitting there and they're like, oh boy, what's, what's going to happen? He's like, why didn't you ever learn? Nobody ever taught you? And the guy's like, no, I, I never learned. And he's like, I could teach you. And you know, this is a program where they're kind of letting people, it's, it's kind of this self-selecting group and, and they let people kind of go where, where it goes. And they're like, oh boy. So they end up making an appointment. They scheduled a day to go to this like boxing gym. They bring both men there. And the, the man who, who, had, who had committed the robbery says, okay, man, now you come up behind me. Now grab me, grab me by the neck, you know, put me in a chokehold. And he's like, now you do this to get out of it. You twist and then you go down, you twist. And he's like, all right, now hold me harder, harder, harder. And he's like showing him how to get out of a chokehold. And he's like, okay, now let's switch. So now this man who's so traumatized from this, from this robbery is not only being held in the position, but by the person who held him like this. And they switch and he's like, all right, I'm holding you. He's like, all right, now do this, now do this, now do this. And by the end of the day, the guy's like in a tight chokehold and is able to get out. 
you know, Danielle kind of explains it and says, we're, we're still not quite sure. I mean, this was a, it was a pretty successful day, but we don't really know the after effects of this. Anyhow, she says the next day she, in the afternoon, she gets a call from, from the, from the van, the man who'd been victimized. And, and he says, Danielle, I, I went out into the, into the street and I felt nothing. And she's like, that may not sound like much, but but this is someone who'd been so badly traumatized. He's like, so then I ran to the most crowded place I could think of. I ran to Times Square and there were people coming from every direction and I felt nothing. I wasn't scared anymore. It's just such a powerful story because Mm. it shows, and both, both, both men received um, a great deal of services and treatment and, and social work and all the help and support that they needed. But, but the, the perpetrator has not ever reoffended. This man was able to kind of figure out a way to get past the trauma of this hor- horrible event and, and recover from it. And both of them are doing so well. And I think it's just kind of a testament to how if you think outside of the box, if you reimagine something, even something where there's a violent crime that has taken place, both people can be healed from this and can figure out a way to move forward that doesn't involve just like locking someone up and throwing away the key. Oh, I, I mean, that's an incredible story. Um, and I have kind of tears welling up behind my eyes because it's beautiful. It's, uh, it's community in action. It's healing. It's, it's trauma sensitive on both sides. Um, and it is something that is doable. Like it's not, it's not like a fantasy. It's something that we can do. It's something that um, is possible. Um, it's something that's so far uh, adrift from what we know in our carceral system and what we've seen. I mean, I can't, I personally can't imagine that happening in our courthouses, but I want it to happen. You know, like that's what I would love to see because we know, we know given the work that we do of the the unhealing and the brokenness that brings people to the desperate points in their lives where they commit crimes and violent crimes and where they uh, hurt other people, hurt people, hurt people. Um, and so we've, we've known that, we witnessed that, and we know that there's a way out for the people that, uh, that we represent that have committed those crimes. There's a way back to a, diff- there, there's a, way back to a, a different place in their lives or a way out to a different place in their in their futures, um, and it. But we're we've been calling for a DA's office that sees that 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 honors that humanity and that is willing to treat them instead of just locking them up and calling them really ugly names. So it's so beautiful to to hear that story and to to think that it can become something that's a part of your tenure as DA and that can spread um, across our country. Eliza, I, I, I want to kind of talk uh, nuts and bolts for a minute, and I want to understand what this uh, campaign looks like, what's what's happening there. We're here in, in California, you're there in Manhattan. So what's this, um, what's the context of this election looking, looking like? Who are you running against? When's the election? And how can people uh, get in touch with you uh, to learn more about you or to support your campaign? I will say that it's really cool to meet you. I had already we're meeting you virtually. We had been connected on Twitter for a long time. We've been following you on Twitter. Um, it's cool when public defender Twitter comes to life and we can actually put voices and faces to the people that are typing in 240 characters at a time. So, um, you know, just so tell us a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you and also tell us a bit more about the, the uh, election um, uh, process. So our election is... June 22nd of 2021. 
It is a Democratic primary because here in Manhattan we elect Democrats and that's basically the election. So the current incumbent is Cy Vance, who I've talked a lot about, who is, you know, I think extremely vulnerable given the time that we're in and, and all of the kind of horrific decisions he's made over his 12 years. Um, but his predecessor, Robert Morgenthau, was there for 36 years. So it's something that he certainly isn't term limited out. There are no term limits, but he hasn't officially announced whether or not he's running for re-election. Um, we have 11 months. He doesn't have to announce yet. The donation limits, this is wild, are $35,000 per individual donor. So you want to talk about ways in which the system tries to maintain the status quo. That is certainly one of them, because here in New York State, we need desperately need campaign finance reform, um, because those who are powerful and wealthy can just, he can call 10 friends in an afternoon and raise $350,000, um, which is as much as I've raised in four months of running. But I have thousands of donors and, and have built a huge grassroots movement, um, because people, I think, really are ready to see a change. But that gives him the opportunity to not make this decision yet um but he is vulnerable so you know there there are people who are going to be challenging him for sure and so it's it's really exciting and i think um would love for everyone to to keep up with me uh the website is elizaorlins.com e-l-i-z-a-o-r-l-i-n-s.com i'm eliza orlins on twitter e orlins on instagram and eliza orlins for ny f-o-r-n-y on Facebook. So I'm all over the place. I would love for people to, to check us out and to support in any way that they're able because we're going to need it. It's going to be an uphill battle. Um, getting a public defender elected to be district attorney is not easy, but as you know, it would be, it would be transformative. And before we wrap, just uh, one topic that we just absolutely had to cover, Eliza, is uh, that you were on Survivor. Yes, I was. What season? Where were you? So I was actually on two seasons. Please don't judge me. This was a long time ago. Um, I was on I think Vanuatu. it's cool. I couldn't go on. Season 9, Vanuatu, and season 16, which was in Micronesia, um, which was called Fans versus Favorites. So I was a favorite. Oh, wow. And, and so uh, when, yeah. when were those? When, were, when was season 2 and when was season 16? That sounds like a, a pretty far apart in terms of time. So my first season was season nine, actually. It was, um, that one was in 2004. And then the, my second one I filmed in 2007 um, when I was in law school. Okay, so how uh, has Survivor, when do you draw on your Survivor experience as a public defender? What are the moments where you've, you've, you've channeled those moments of starvation or uh, need to hunt? <laughs> Um, I think that it, you know, gives you perspective on on dealing with folks who maybe are going to be adversarial to you or, or who want to um, do the courtroom equivalent of vote you out. And I think that it's something that you just, you know, I'm, I have thick skin. I have, uh, I've developed a lot of thick skin after growing up on social media and exposing myself to millions of people on television in my most, in my most uh, exposed state, you know, starving and, and exhausted and really very uh, putting myself out there. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready for whatever comes my way. 
do you bring it up ever? So if I were on Survivor, you wouldn't ever hear the end of it. Like I'd be in closing argument. I'd be like, listen, everybody. I was on Survivor. Do you refrain? Maybe it's just I, how petty I am or how like uh, small I am. I don't bring it up. Um, also, you know, I've spent far more of my life uh, in the trenches, in the courtroom, fighting, fighting against injustice than I ever spent in front of a camera. But it is kind of this fun, bizarre backstory hobby thing that I did. I can imagine it being a really, you know, you may not recognize it consciously, but being, like you said, on camera, being on display, uh, competing, giving it literally all of you, your, you know, giving of yourself, of your body in that way, and then translating that into the courtroom where you're in front of juries, you're in front of judges, you're having to give of yourself, give of your spirit for the people that we represent. Um, I'd imagine that that they're you're drawing on a similar well inside of you to to do to do each thing and then now as you campaign i imagine like just mustering up that spirit and that grit to get out there and to do the campaign work and and put yourself out there as you described and i'd imagine that all of that is on the same continuum of of who you are and what you're able to bring to the to the work so that's exciting lucky that i've you know garnered a a national platform, Twitter. I mean, people started following me on social media, I think because I was on reality TV, they came for that. And then they <laughs> stayed for the raging against injustice. There you know, you those, those who, who weren't into the, the political side and the activism and everything else that I bring certainly have, have long unfollowed. So I feel like I can reach certain people who otherwise might never have been involved in a local district attorney race in Manhattan, a place where some of them have never even been, but they care about it and they, they've followed me for a long time. And, and so I'm reaching people with these, um, with these fights that, that otherwise I might not be able to. So I feel really, really lucky and grateful for that. Well, Eliza Orleans, thank you so much for coming on Aider and a Better. Sajid, good seeing you. Yeah, and, good to see you uh, too. We will, it's great to have you. And uh, we will talk to you all next time, later.